Let's get back to Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, let's get right to our next interview. Basketball Hall of Famer, former actually Chicago Bull for a season, and San Antonio Spur, George Gervin. The Iceman cometh. How could someone call the Iceman live in Texas? You should be in Alaska or something like that. <laughs> oh, no. no way, my man. I want to stay around. No snow. No snow, man, I tell you. <laughs> Where did the nickname come from? The nickname came when I when I was in the ABA, uh, playing with the Virginia Squires and you know, and I, I signed with the Squires and and um Julius Irvin and, and Fatty Taylor, you know, uh from me being from Detroit, you know, started calling me Ice, you know, because of my style. So it was you know, nickname. You know, back there in them days, uh, in the ABA days, we all had nicknames. So um, mine was Ice. I see that you grew up in Detroit. How did you not end up at Michigan University? Well, you know, I wasn't really highly recruited. Um, you know, when I came out of out of Detroit, um, one probably didn't have anything to do with my ability. It was probably my grades. You know, I probably couldn't go to a Big Ten school because of my grades. Um, I didn't value education like I should have as a young man. So I tell kids today, I say, you know, um, okay, you know, you're a good player, and okay, uh, but the first thing I want to know is how's your grades? Because if you got good grades, you can go anywhere you want to go. But if you don't have good grades, you got to go where somebody else wants you to go. So that's why it's important to to take care of your, your schoolwork along with your basketball plan. So what was it like going from Detroit to Ypsilanti? 40 miles, easy. You know, I mean, it was real easy, you know. And, you know, being a young man and, you know, uh, just getting off to college, um, you know, you always kind of want to stay close to home. So, you know, I was able to go home on the weekends and, you know, see my mom and, you know, and uh, be there at home, get that home cooked uh, food. So it, it was kind of, you know, it was an easy decision for me. Then how did you end up at Long Beach State? Well, you know, Tarkanian was the coach at the time, and, and Big George Trop, Big George Trop was, you know, in Detroit, and I used to play in the summertime against George, and George told Tarkanian about me. Tarkanian came and, you know, recruited me, and, you know, and I went out to Long Beach for two weeks and just, you know, got homesick and, you know, just never really been anywhere. And to go, you know, from coast to coast to, to California, it, you know, it wasn't appealing to me. So I, I took the red eye one night and snuck out and went back to Detroit and and started my basketball career at Eastern Michigan. Tarkania came back the next day asking me to come back, and I told Tark, it wasn't, you know, it had nothing to do with you, Tark. I, I just didn't want to be away from home. And then at age 20, all of a sudden, you're a professional basketball player. Were, yeah. were you prepared for that? Well, I mean, I was prepared to play the game. Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, with being 19, 20 years old, uh, and that you know, that lifestyle thrown upon me, um, you know, it was uh, exciting and scary at the same time. But, you know, I love basketball so much that, you know, I stayed in the gym, you know, and, you know, and worked on my game. And, you know, so I spent a lot of time working on my game. And, 
and uh, and it became a lot easier because of my preparation. The ABA was better suited for your style because back then the NBA was more closed where you didn't have the wide open game, where the ABA, it's more about showman scoring, putting up a lot of points. Well, I mean, you know, the ABA was a, a fast-paced lead, you know, where we scored 115, 120, you know, pretty much every night. You know, where the NBA, you know, was more strategic, you know. Uh, you know, they talk about defense, you know, they scoring 60, 70 points a night, and, you know, which to us wasn't that exciting. So, you know, it was two different leagues. It was two different styles. You had a lot more younger guys in the ABA. Uh, I think it was a lot more entertaining uh, uh, basketball, um, you know, at that time. Um, and, you know, until we had an opportunity to make that merge in 76. And, you know, and then once we got into the NBA, I think we really just opened up them floodgates, man, and made everybody pretty much play our style. But, you know, if you go back in the history, you know, the Boston Celtics ran, you know, I mean, they had a fast uh, uh, pace style of uh, basketball and, and they won, uh, with Bill Russell 11 championships. So I think that's the way you should play basketball is to get up and down the floor. Yeah. Now, one of the young guys on the Virginia Squires was a fellow named Julius Irving. And stories exist that after practice, you and Dr. J would, uh, would go a little one on one. Is that true? Man, that is so true, man. I mean, Doc, you know, I owe a lot to him because he kind of took me under his wing. I mean, we used to practice, and, and then after practice over, uh, you know, I'd be here to the locker room with the rest of the guys, and I hear a voice in the background saying, Hey, Rook, where you going? You ain't done yet. And, and man, we used to be one-on-one, man. We did that for quite a while, man, but it was an introduction for me to find out who he was. You know, you knew of him. But you didn't really know him. And then, you know, once I got to the Squires and I was able to, you know, uh, play with him and play against him, it was, it was fun, man. I mean, you know, I was scared to death, you know, probably that first week. And, um, you know, once I, I got my confidence, then, you know, I really felt that I could compete with him. Why was he calling you a rook? There was only a year age or two year age difference between you. It wasn't like he was a grizzled veteran. Well, I mean, but you know how this game is, man. You know, I mean, and rookies, you know, when you're your first year, you know, and he was, I think, there uh, a year or so before me, you know, rookies have certain duties that they got to perform that veterans, you know, go get the donuts in the morning, you know, go get, you know, the McDonald's, you know, I mean, you know, so, you know, they, they put that on rookies. I mean, and that's all part of the tradition, so... I didn't mind because I was so thankful to be a rookie into the ABA, you know, professional basketball that, you know, it, it, it didn't bother me at all. Now, your coach was uh, Al Bianchi, who was a former NBA guard. Did he have to do anything other than just roll out the basketball? Well, Al was a good coach, you know. I mean, you know, Al had his own philosophy, you know, and Al liked to win. I mean, and then he had talent, you know, because, you know, you have Doctor, and then, you know, just before I came there, you had, you know, Doc and Charlie Scott. Um, and, you know, then our point guard was Fatty Keller, who was probably one of the, you know, best defensive, uh, uh, point guards in the league. Um, and then we got Swin Nader. I mean, so, you know, Al knew how to mismatch, uh, situations on the floor. So, you know, with the guys that we had, 
you know, I can put the ball in the hole, Doc can put the ball in the hole. We, you know, we both had our different styles. You know, Doc could dunk on you. Uh, uh, he was more of a scorer, and I was more of a shooter, you know, uh, um, and, and later on became a shooter and a scorer. So, you know, Al, you know, we owe a lot to Al, man, because, uh, you know, Al, Al was a front coach to play for. Who would win those one-on-one games between you and Julius? Doc. Real simple, Doc. He, he was just so quick he would be right by you? Right, and then he go by me so quick, and then he dunk on me. You know, I, I don't have time to react. But, you know, again, um, I won a few, you know. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the doctor, man. I mean, you know, Doc wasn't just going by me. He was going by anybody else that guarded him. So, you know, he was... You know, he was just a special player, man, and I always called him Mr. ADA because I felt that, you know, he was the ADA. I have to agree with that assessment because when you think of the red, white, and blue basketball, you think of Dr. J palming it and driving to the basket for a reverse stunk and things like that. And he could also knock down the jumper, too. But uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, you, know, I, you know, I had my impact, too, but, you know, when you really think about it, though, and you Talk about ABA basketball. I mean, nine out of ten times you're going to talk about Julius Erner, you know, or you're going to mention Artis Gilmore, you know. I mean, you know, them two guys are the guys that really made that tremendous impact, you know, on the ABA. I mean, there's other great guys, too, you know, George McGinnis, uh, you know, uh, Roger Brown, Thelmo mm-hmm. uh, Beatty, uh, you know, Moses Malone, uh, uh, you know, day to time. You know, you can just go down the list and name the guys that had a tremendous impact, you know, in the ABA. But if you ask any one of these guys that I named who was the man in the ABA, they're going to all say Dr. J. And part of that comes from the Squires selling Dr. J to the Nets. And if he goes to the New York market where a lot more uh, media follows him. Now, when he left, all of a sudden, you're able to get the ball more and score a lot more. What was that like? Well, I mean, you know, I, I always feel, I mean, you know, you know, guys have to wait their turn. You know, when I was playing with him, uh, you know, I I probably averaged probably about 16, 17 points, and, you know, Doc was probably averaging 29 or 30. So when Doc got traded to the Nets, I mean, you know, I was pretty much the next guy in line that had that ability to put the ball in the basket. So, you know, it was my turn. So, um, you know, it just worked out for me um, to, you know, be in a situation to where, you know, the coach believed in me and believed in my skills and, you know, put the ball in my hand. So it felt great. I mean, um, what young ball player, you know, uh, wants that opportunity to have the green light? You know, I tell young kids today, if you got the green light, I mean, you can shoot the ball wherever you want to. Why you have to take so many bad shots? You don't really have to take bad shots. You know, we see that a lot today, you know, where guys got the green light, can shoot any time they want, and they take terrible shots. You know, um, you know, I believe in shooting good shots. I mean, I shot 51% career, you know. Um, um, so, you know, I'm proud of my uh, statistics and, you know, in, in scoring the basketball, I didn't just have to jack it up. I mean, I took good shots and and uh, shot a good percentage uh, from taking good shots. How did you end up down in San Antonio? Well, you know, Earl Foreman, who was, you know, the owner of the Squires, you know, uh, must have saw a situation where he needed money, so he started selling off players, you know. Uh, so, you know, he got, got 
sold off Doc, you know, and then, uh, you know, then he sold off um, um, Swin Nader, you know, and then it was my turn. And then, he, you know, he sold me off to the San Antonio Spurs. And, you know, I didn't like coming down here to San Antonio because I didn't know anything about it. The only thing I knew about San Antonio was the Alamo, and that's part of history. <laughs> You know, um, um, I didn't want to leave. I mean, I'm a young 19, 20-year-old in, in, in Norfolk, Virginia, you know, where you got Hampton Institute, Norfolk State, you know, uh, uh, Richmond. I mean, you know, so I felt real comfortable being in that environment. Um, but once, you know, they traded me and, and I became a part of the San Antonio Spurs, 38 years later, I'm still here. So I fell in love with San Antonio. You got to play on a pretty decent team. You had uh, Donnie Freeman, yes. George Carl, and you know Swen yes. Nader, who you mentioned, who yes. was a big star at UCLA, and uh, Rich Jones was our power forward. Right. Um, you know, I had Kobe a guy Dietrich. named Simeon. You know, Kobe Dietrich, uh, Mark Oberdeen, Mike Gill. I mean, I had some guys man that could play. Man, we had a a, a great basketball team. Uh, uh, you know, down here in San Antonio. Um, you know, the ABA, we was entertaining, you know, um, you know, wasn't nothing like that red, white, and blue ball. Um, so, no, San Antonio became a, you know, a basketball destination where guys love coming down here and playing. So, um, we were real proud of what we were doing here in San Antonio. We gave you the A train for Dave Corzine. You had to be happy with the Bulls for that. Well, I mean, you know, you get a seven footer. <laughs> You know, I mean, and a seven footer of artist statue, you know, I mean, it was a plus for us. Um, um, you know, I want to say, you know, we was winning 50 games pretty much, you know, every year, uh, you know, with the A train. So, I mean, we had our shot, you know, at, 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 at getting to the NBA final. Um, but it was kind of, kind of tough getting through. We had the West, we had to get through the Lakers. You know, with uh, Magic and Kareem and Noah Nixon and, you know, and these type of guys. And then on the East, we had to get through, you know, West Sunset, uh, Elvin Hayes, Bobby Dandridge. Uh, so, um, you know, we was playing against some other great teams, too, because, you know, in our era, we was uh, in the semis twice, once in the West and, and, and once in the East. So, and if we win them games, then we get a chance to play you know, for the finals, but unfortunately that didn't happen for us. I think Dave Corzine was the only seven-footer who couldn't dunk in the NBA. <laughs> no, Dave couldn't dunk, but he was a big body. He knew how to play. He could shoot the basketball, um, um, and he knew his role. So, you know, anytime you know your role, you know, you could be lacking in ability, but if you know your role, I mean, you can stay in this league, you know, for a little while and stuff. So I think that's what made uh, Dave Corzine special. Now, when you went to San Antonio, you came in as the main offensive force. Was there pressure? Did you feel pressure? No, because, you know, scoring was just something that was natural to me. You know, I mean, I knew I could put the ball in the hole. I didn't feel anybody can stop me. I felt that if I was stopped, it was more so of myself. Um, But I didn't know. I didn't feel that kind of pressure, man. I mean, because scoring was easy, you know, because I was so fundamentally sound. I mean, and. You know, and, and, and you think about it, having the fundamentals as a young man, you know, which I got a lot from my high school coach, Willie Murrayweather, you know, he taught me the fundamentals, you know, and, and, and our kids go away from that today. 
you know, I would go and lay the ball up with my left hand on the left hand side. I would go on the right side and lay it up. You know, I would shoot in between jumpers going to the right. I shoot in between jumpers going to the left. I mean, I would shoot five or six hundred times a day. So, you know, I, I, I built up my confidence that I can do these things. And then, you know, my self-esteem took over, you know, to where I knew I put in the work. So scoring was easy. Um, you know, if you look at the, the league today, you have so many athletes that don't have skills. They're athletic and run and jump and, but their fundamentals are not there. So, you know, uh, for a guy like me that was fundamentally sound, I, I sit back and say, man, if he had some fundamentals, man, I mean, he would be a much better ball player than what he is today. When you beat David Thompson for that scoring title in 78, did you realize how many points you needed to win? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because because David played in Detroit, my hometown, that afternoon. And I was leading the league in scoring, you know, at that time, last game of the season. And David scored 73 points that afternoon. So the press called and said, George, you know, David Thompson scored 73 points. You need 59 to regain your title, your scoring title. So, you know, I, I had already got that information. So, you know, and I'm not the only one that got it. My teammates and my coach at the time, Doug Moe, also found out about it. So when we got over to the locker room, coach asked the guys, they guys, you know, because we was already in the playoffs. So, you know, it was just the last game of the season. They said, we want to try to, you know, help Ice get his scoring title back. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, what can I say? I mean, you know, you got – 11 guys and a coach saying, we want you to, you know, try to get your scoring title. And, wow, I mean, so, you know, the game start. You know, I missed my first six shots, call timeout, and say, coach, man, you know, we ain't really got to do this. You know, I was kidding, of course, I mean, but I was feeling that little pressure. And then, you know, went back in the game and ended up getting 20 points in the, in the first quarter and ended up getting 33 in the second quarter. And so, you know, I had 53 at half, so I only needed 59. So I ended up with, uh, you know, 63 points in 33 minutes. So, you know, in hindsight, you know, I, you know, hindsight, we all know 2020, uh, I, if I would have played the whole game, I might could have scored 80. I might could have scored 85 the way I was rolling, but I only needed 59. And when I got that 59, they told me you got 59. I so I said, Coach, you know, let me get a couple of more points, man, just in case they miscalculated. <laughs> there was no desire to go for Wilt's record. No, I mean, cause that wasn't my goal. My goal was to to get 59. You know, um, but again, I go back to hindsight. You know, and I saw Kobe get 80. You know, 81. You know, it makes you kind of think, wow, man, I only played 33 minutes and got 63 points, man. I mean, wow, what, what if I would have played the rest of the third and all the fourth? What could have happened? But, you know, I don't regret because, you know, regret is a waste of emotion anyway. I just say, well, that's, that's just the way it happened. Uh, in 33 points, still a record today, you know, and I got it way back in, what, 77, 78. And it's easier now because you don't have the hand checking. It's not as physical for these players. Oh, unbelievable, man. I mean, uh, you know, if I was playing a day and you couldn't put your hands on me, I know I could average 35. You know, because they can't, they can't stop your forward progress. They can't put their hand on you. You know, it's kind of like college, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, where if you touch me, I can go over to the foul line. Uh, 
And they playing zones, man. They playing zones in the NBA. So what if the word zone on me? You know, back in them days and stuff, you know, you kind of getting me a little excited here because, <laughs> you know, you killed me, man. They can't touch you. And these guys are still struggling to score. You know, I mean, this thing, man, West Unsell, yeah. man, you be running down the middle of West Unsell and step out in front of you and you like hitting a brick wall and you go straight to the floor. You know, guys grabbing you and stuff, and, you know, and that's not a foul. So, hey, you know, um, you know, it's like, um, by Miller Anthony tied my 33 points in the quarter. But when I got my 33, it wasn't no three point shot. So he got what, 10, 12 shots of three pointers. So when the media called me and said, you know, I think Carmelo tied you back, which is a great feat. But I said, you know, it really should be an asterisk behind it because, you know, he got 12 points and three point shots. So that's reality. But like my grandson say, oh, granddad, he tied you. I don't care. That's the rules. <laughs> now, now, some players are known for their shots. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had the sky hook. You had the finger roll. Where did you develop that? And I, I don't know that there's been any player before or since that could do it the way you did it. Well, uh, you know, I, I never forget, man. In uh, 1997, we was in Cleveland for the All-Star game, and, and that's when we became the 50 greatest players. And so, you know, all the 50 greatest guys was there. And I, I was sitting um, downstairs in the lobby, and I was sitting at a table with um, Whoop Chamberlain, um, Connie Hawkins, um, Julius Irving, um, let's see, myself, and I think, I want to say it was Dolph Shea. So we were sitting around talking and stuff, and then Whoop just jumped up and said, hey, Ice, how you going to steal my finger roll, man, and stuff, and then uh, Connie Hawkins said, oh, no, you know, I'm one of his favorite players, you know, he got it for me, and then Julius said, I played with him. You know, you know, he got it for me. I said, look, guys, wait a minute. I took a piece from each one of you guys, and I made it famous. It all bust out laughing, man. I mean, because I am not the inventor of the finger roll. I'm the one that made the finger roll famous because I had three other guys that I can emulate and then put my own style on it. So, you know, people always say, you're the inventor of the finger roll, and I'll be the first one to tell them, no, I'm not. You know, if you look at them three guys, they all had their versions of it. I just took my version and made it famous. Yeah, but, but Will was doing it from about six inches away from the basket and still couldn't make some of those shots. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you, you took it you took it away from the basket and were able to do it. Well, because that was, you know, my style. That was my style, man. I mean, really, you haven't seen it since. Why is you it? You know, I mean, because guys don't, I, I don't know why guys don't sit and just analyze, you know, how I did it. I mean, uh, it's very effective. I mean, it's better than a dunk to me, you know. Uh, but, again, it comes down to the skill factor. You know, I worked on my skills. <laughs> Who gave you the hardest time on defense? Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson is the guy that come on the top of my head. And then I started thinking even more. I was thinking like Bobby Jones, uh, T.R. Dunn, uh you know, Michael Cooper played me hard. Jamal Wilkes played me hard. You know, you had a handful of guys that, you know, I would get a hard 30 on. You that, know, I mean, they, 
Johnson was they tough. They made me use my skills. Johnson was tough. He, he looked like a bulldog out there with those eyes and the way he played defense. Man, I mean, he didn't go for many fakes. He stayed on his feet. You know, and that's what made him a good defender. And then, you know, he's about 6'5", you know, he can move his feet, you know. And so that would made him, you know, a good defender. And then he had Cooper, you know, Cooper always reaching and, you know, always trying to get offensive, you know, make me run over him and get offensive foul. And, you know, I mean, T.R. Dunn, you know, was the same way. You know, he was tough, you know, and, you know, didn't back down and, you know, wasn't scared, you know. I mean, because, you know, you had a lot of guys that were scared to guard me. You know, yeah, guys come up to, you know, beginning of the game and say, I used to, you know, take it easy on me tonight. And I used to say, okay, and try to get 50 on them. Because <laughs> I knew they were scared. Now, one of your teammates is the former Arkansas, at uh, San Antonio, is the former Arkansas guard, Ron Brewer, whose who's son's now in the NBA. And... When you set out the three games because of injury, he he comes in, he scores 30 points. You come back and you score 40-plus points. Sending a little message to anybody there? Well, I mean, I knew we called him Boothead, you know. Uh, I knew Ron could play, you know. Um, but, you know, that's the beauty of um, when we played. You know, uh, you, you, you know, you always had somebody backing you up was maybe not just as good as you, but sometimes may be just as effective as you. So that made you stay on top of your game. So when Buddha had scored them in thirties, you know, uh, you know, when I was hurt, I was saying, well, you know, I need to, I need to do something to kind of let not just Buddha know, but the rest of the league know ice is back. You scored the 63 points in a game, but I think the most famous 63-point game was that Jordan game in the playoffs against the Celtics. What was that like? Oh, that was something special, man. I mean, um, you know, the, just to, you know, be on the sideline because I didn't get that much playing time. You know, I was at the end of my career, you know, and I knew it was Michael's turn. Uh, so, you know, I didn't really affect me. Uh, um, but it was special, you know. Uh, I remember when I was playing with him, and we were, uh, and, and, and we was on a roll in Dallas. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, I was getting a little older and stuff, you know, so, you know, I, I scored 35 at the half on Dallas. And then, uh, you know, I went over there to Mike and I said, uh, uh, uh no, I didn't say nothing. And then after the game, I only ended up probably with about 40 something. And then I went over there to Mike and he said, Oh, old man, you got tired, huh? I said, young fella, I was just showing you how it used to be. So, you know, yeah, it, it, it was good to see him do what he did, but hopefully he saw what I did at that, you know, halftime of that Dallas game that inspired him to let me know you had your turn, old man. What was it like seeing the early Jordan, the fairly early Jordan? Did you, did you see a little bit of ice in him? No, he had his own style, man. I mean, you know, that's what I really admire about him, man, and, you know, Mike had that drive in him, you know, ain't talking about driving to the basket. He had that drive in him, man, that, you know, I didn't see in very many guys, you know. Uh, you know, he, he, he wanted to be the best, you know. Uh, he hated to lose. Even in practice, he played all hard and stuff. And, and he should play so hard in practice and stuff. I just said, hey, young fella, take it easy, man. He said, well, move on out the way, old man. So, you know, he had that. He had that drive in him, man. So I saw the potential in Mike. Um, I didn't know it was going to 
be the 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 player that he had became. Um, but I saw the potential in him, you know, uh, his second year when I played with him. So um, he surpassed. You know anything that I thought he might be become, man. Uh, he's considered the greatest of all time. Uh, but I always tell people, I, you, you gotta. What criteria are you using to say he's the greatest of all time? Because you know you got Will and you got Green and you know you got Russell. They got eleven championships. Sam Jones got ten. I mean, so entertainer wise. He probably was the greatest of all time. Uh, I put him and uh, Magic Johnson in that in that same boat as far as entertainment. But he changes his career went on. He went from a Dr. J type when he started playing above the rim to being more of a perimeter shooter later on. Well, he, he understood. I mean, you know, he he was only what I'm talking about six 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 six, six five six six. Okay, you know, you know, you're gonna keep running in that basket and, and, and keep running to them guys 280, you know, 270, I mean, knocking you down. I mean, he realized that if he developed an in-between game with his quickness, I mean, that the game can become easier for him. You know, um, cause you know, early on, he, he wasn't really a good shooter. No. You know, I mean, you know, he was, he, he was a scorer. You know, he drive, get by you, score, lay up, get fouled. I mean, that's how he was getting his points. But later on in his career, he, he was able to figure it out that it was a lot easier to be able to go by guys and pull up and shoot that in-between jumper. The in-between jumper is a lost art. You don't see guys shooting that in-between jumper today. Uh, I can go, name one guy off the top of my head, Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade shoot that in-between jumper. If you can shoot that in-between jumper today, you can almost become famous because it's a lost art. You know, um, you know, another one of my favorites is a guy named Kevin Durant. You know, um, who they compare to me. You know, I mean, they compare him to me because he's tall, skinny, and he can score. But see, he scored different than I did. You know, he scored more off of jumpers. You know, I scored more off of, you know, going to the hole, uh, using both hands, uh, finger rolling, up and under. You know, uh, you know, so I shot a lot more higher percentage shots than him. You know, I, I was more like a Fred Astaire kind of player, you know, where I could dance around guys and score. You know, he's so he's 6'10", so he can shoot over you. You know, um, once he developed that in-between shot, he's going to be hard to deal with, too. Well, he's hard to deal with anyway, but I think he'll be even more efficient. What a lot of people don't realize is you also could play a little defense every now and again, couldn't you? Well, you know, they always say, well, Gerber don't play no defense. But if you look at my stats, you know, I probably had, if I was the first guard or the only guard ever had 110 block shots in a season. You know, so, you know, if you limping, I'm going I'm to either take the ball or, or, or knock it down court. So, you know, I had my effectiveness in, on the defensive, you know, end of the floor. But I scored so easy. I always said, man, somebody just always got to find out something wrong with my game. I, what I don't understand is with Derrick Rose with the Bulls, they're basically saying that his handlers are basically telling him, don't come back this year, wait, you got to worry about your career. Whereas Jordan, 85, when you were on the team, I heard that he wanted to get back as soon as possible and play, and no one was going to stop him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that's a, you know, a, a, a personal issue, you know, and, and, and then, you know, that's the, 
that's an individual's choice. I mean, it's a Bulls organization uh, say, you know, we don't want you to come back, and you know, I'd rather wait. Uh, you know, because that that's a that's a pretty tough injury that you know, that he uh, occurred. You know, um, so he, with me, you know, don't come back halfway. You know, when you come back, you know, come back when you have that confidence that everything is healed. You know, and, and, and you're ready to come back and give 100%. Don't come back and give 75%. You know, come back when you know you're ready to come back and fulfill your obligation, you know, to that team to get them 100%. So, I mean, that's my opinion, you know. I mean, it's what my opinion means. You know, probably not to nobody, but I have one. And, you know, since you asked me, I gave it to you. Now, after your NBA career, you played in Italy, you played in the, the CBA, you played in Spain. How difficult was it for you to have to, to leave the game? Man, you know, can't nobody stay on top forever. You know, I mean, I had my turn. You know, uh, fortunately for me, I, I had an opportunity to go overseas, you know, and play in Italy, uh, take my family, you know, uh, you know, come, uh, you know, away from the, you know, the NBA uh, world and, you know, kind of help me come down. You know, from that, you know, that NBA life and, and, and have the experience, you know, by living overseas. Uh, my kids went to international school. You know, my wife loved it because of all the clothes and the history, you know, uh, that she can, you know, really show my kids. So that was great for me. You know, we played one game a week, you know, uh, Sunday at five o'clock. We played 30 games. So, you know, that's 30 Sundays, you know, so it was slow basketball. I mean, it was fun. I, got a chance to play against a lot of Italian guys and I, I saw how a lot of the you know European guys were starting to climb up the ladder the ladder as far as uh, being efficient and, and maybe have an opportunity to you know play in our league in the NBA so it was great and then you know I left there and went to Spain and you know my family was over there and went to and, and, and they went to international school so it was a great experience for them so you know I used that to kind of come down from, you know, the, you know, the NBA and, uh, you know, and, and get on with my life. Who was your favorite player growing up? Wow. My favorite player growing up, you know, I, my high school coach, Willie Merwell and Oscar Robinson went to high school together, you know, Christian addicts. Uh, mm-hmm. so, um, um, Oscar used to come to our school, Martin Luther King in Detroit when I was a, a youngster. So, you know, Oscar became my, my favorite player, you know, when I was young. And then when I got older, Connie Hawkins and Julius, you know, and them guys, uh, you know, uh, also was a, a part of, you know, of the players that I admired. Now, your last game in Spain, you had, what, 31 points, 15 rebounds? Not, not a bad well, way to go out. Well, I mean, and, 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 you know, we was in A2. So, you know, if we win that game, that, uh, Manrissa can go to A1. So it was an important game. Uh, they was counting on me and I was gr- glad that I was able to, you know, come through for them. I mean, they were real excited and, you know, but, you know, that was my last hurrah. You know, I, I realized that I had my turn and, uh, it was time to move on and, uh, you know, do the things that I'm doing now here in San Antonio and uh, um, with my charity. I'll tell you what, I give you a lot of credit working with youth, how you're basically trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. You know, because I know a lot of kids want to do what I did. They want to play pro sports, you know, uh, whether it's basketball, football, uh, 
you know, hockey, I mean, whatever. But what I want them to understand that, you know, I was lucky, you know, I mean, because when I left school, you know, I, uh, Johnny Ray Kurt saw me playing in the CBA. I scored 50 points. You know, uh, he called me on four and on four and sent for me and I, you know, and I made 25 out of 33. He signed me on the spot. So I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. So a lot of these kids don't see that. That's why I promote education. Cause you know, with a good education, man, you give your, yourself an opportunity to kind of do anything you want to do. You know, um, um, you know, you know, you, you know, learn how to read so, you know, you can learn about things, um, you know, with all this computer technology, you learn, you know, about these computers, you can travel around the world sitting down, you know, uh, at your desk. I mean, so education is everything to me. And I told you at the beginning of the, of, of the show that I didn't value education like I should have, um, you know, as a young man. So I feel this part of my obligation is to teach a young man how important it is to get a good education and to give yourself an opportunity to do whatever you want to do, man. You know, get a skill, you know, um, um, you know, cause, you know, I mean, you know, like I know, man, you know, we all talk about going to college, but you know, college is an expensive challenge if you don't get a scholarship, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so, you know, you can go to a trade school, you know, and get you a trade. And if you want to get higher education with that trade, you can help pay for your higher education, you know, so that's kind of like what I promote down here in San Antonio. I have seven programs. Here in San Antonio for children, you can look at my website, uh, 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 uh George Derby Center. Um, I have a charter school, uh, here in San Antonio uh, that I didn't have for 17 years. Um, you know, we got grades K to 12. Um, um, I have built another charter school, um, last year in Phoenix called the George Durbin Preparatory School for sixth and seventh and eighth grade. You know, uh, because I believe in this, man. I, I, I know our kids need us, you know, and if we can provide opportunities and, and, and promote education, then we can save some of these kids, man. I mean, because they're building more prisons than they are educational facilities, and we need to change that, man. We need to prevent these kids from going to jail, man. And the only way they're going to do that is get a good education. And when I go speak, I tell a kid, Look here, you got two ways you can do your 1 to 12. You can do your 1 to 12 in an educational facility, or you're going to do your 1 to 12 in jail. The choice is yours. Another fine show today, Elliot. You had a beautiful woman via Skype. Right. we got to bring him in studio, though. Exactly. A- Amy Haddad and uh, former NBA great George Gervin. Another fine job by Dave Olson on the boards. I'm David Spader with Elliot Harris, and thanks for listening to Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com.